two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Great. Thank you, Cindy. Um, would you join me just in a word of prayer as we consider the word of God this morning? God, we come before you um, this morning, humble that we have the opportunity to study your word, to get to know you. Um, we get to see um, your life here on earth and all the work that you did to make us new in you. Thank you that we have the opportunity, like this royal servant in his family, to believe in you, to have new life in you, and to one day live forever with you. God, I pray that those that are hurting in the congregation this morning, from the loss of people close to them, difficulties in life, that you would comfort them with your spirit this morning. We know that you are a God that is the great comforter, and I pray that that reality would just be so present for us this morning. Pray that your spirit would use me to teach what we all need to hear from your word this morning. We pray this in your son's name that is so powerful. Amen. I want to first off um, thank Cindy for coming up and reading um, our passage this morning and our title for our Why Jesus series of this message is In Galilee. Um, but I want to take a little quick time to just say thanks to Cindy again and also a little bit of an encouragement and challenge to maybe some of you uh, in this room because I've gotten to know Cindy and her husband Kirby through our time in our small group on Monday nights um, with others from the congregation. And I must say that I think apart from this small group, I wouldn't typically brush shoulders with Kirby and Cindy. Um, and it's been a blessing getting to know them. And it's been a great opportunity to get to grow closer to someone that, as I said before, I wouldn't probably naturally develop a relationship with. And so my encouragement to those of you, you know, this morning that maybe aren't in a small group, I don't want you to feel ashamed that you're not doing that, but my encouragement would be, you know, I learned the lesson about how good small groups are, how uplifting they can be. I hadn't been in one for quite some time, and for the last two years, myself and Marissa have been in this group, um, and we've been really blessed by that. Getting to know people from other generations um, has been such a treat for us, and so, you know, 
maybe it's not going to work this year, but maybe, you know, deeply consider that, you know, the time next fall comes around when we're making these groups and everything, and hopefully you can be blessed by them as I have. Um, circling back to our story, I want to set the stage uh, for this passage that we're going to be exploring this morning. As it says on the screen, our title is In Galilee, and hopefully you've realized that the message is going to take place in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a province um, in ancient Palestine, and it's a place where Jesus himself had actually grown up. Now, you have to remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was actually a city in Judea. But then, shortly after that, him and his family moved back to Nazarene, and so, sorry, Nazareth, and that's why Jesus himself is called a Nazarene. And so, Galilee is like Jesus' hometown, his home country. And this is also the place where Jesus began his miraculous ministry because Cana, the city where Jesus turned water into wine, was also found in the province of Galilee. And Jesus was starting to make quite a bit of noise, you know, between turning this water into wine, his first miracle, between going down to Jerusalem and flipping a bunch of tables, making up a cord of whips, driving people out of the temple, and starting to perform signs also in Judea. He was making quite a name for himself. And on his travels back to Galilee after going down to Judea, he came up through Samaria, as Chris described last week, had an interaction that was quite peculiar with a woman at a well. And so Jesus had made a little bit of a circle going down to Jerusalem, coming back up to Samaria, and returning back to his town, his hometown, or home province, sorry, in Galilee. And that brings us to the story that Cindy read for us this morning, Jesus in Galilee, Jesus in Galilee his home country, in his hometown. And there were a few issues on hand for Jesus in his home country that we read of this morning. My hope is that through our time together this morning, we can be encouraged as we observe these problems, as we see the answers that Jesus brings to these problems, and that our hearts can be stirred up and moved in impactful ways by the Spirit of God. So as I said, there's a couple of problems that Jesus is going to deal with this morning in our passage And the first problem that he's going to deal with is this problem of proximity. This was a problem that had laid hold of the people in Galilee. John highlights this problem in the first three verses of our passage this morning. He says that after two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. But when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Now, to start off our passage this morning, we have a bit of a contradiction, of a contradicting statement. Jesus was supposed to have no honor in his home country, and yet the Galilean people seemed to welcome him with open arms. Was Jesus wrong? What did he mean that he wasn't supposed to have honor? Why didn't the people of Galilee hate him yet? See, the problem for the people of Galilee wasn't that they seemingly opposed Jesus, but they had actually become all too familiar with Jesus being in their presence. They had this problem of proximity. To the people of Galilee, Jesus was like one of them. He had grown up with them. He had worked alongside them. He had interacted with them very regularly. In all capacities, Jesus appeared just like another person in Galilee. And yes, sure, Jesus could do some really cool things for them, like turn water into wine for them to drink, And in this, they made him sort of like their hometown hero, some sort of party trick for them to show off to other people. But what they failed to recognize 
was that Jesus was so much more than just some gimmick. He was their literal savior, the promised Messiah. And the people of Galilee failed to recognize this as they grew up alongside Jesus. They simply found themselves looking forward to the next cool thing Jesus would do for their benefit. And they had become all too familiar with Jesus' presence. This is the point John is making in verse 44 when he talks about Jesus not having honor in his hometown. It almost appeared that the people's proximity to Jesus in Galilee came at their detriment. But this problem of proximity isn't simply exclusive to the people of Galilee. We struggle with this problem of proximity today in our lives as humans. I have two examples that I wish to use to highlight this point this morning. The first being a more lighthearted story from my childhood. So here on the screen, we have a picture of me and my two brothers, Nolan and Keaton. I'll use my pointer here. So that's me there, Nolan, Keaton, and McKenna. Nolan and Keaton are definitely overjoyed for the event that took place that day. Oop. Me and McKenna, I, I think we've had better days. Um, and this man on the right here, some of you might know, is a man named Daryl Sittler, Maple Leafs legend, who also grew up in St. Jacob's in a small townhouse lying right beside Martin's garage. In 2006, the day that this picture is from, I had the honor of meeting Daryl Sittler at Martin's garage 60th anniversary. The Maple Leafs legend was there. Now, Daryl Sittler's playing career in the NHL was a little bit before my time, but I had a grandpa and a dad who both were proper Leafs fans and were very excited to go meet him that day, and so we were brought along. I still remember being amazed that an NHL legend grew up a mere 10 minutes from where I lived in Elmira. And he even played minor hockey in Elmira, as I was at the time, and also played for the Elmira Sugar Kings, the team that I had watched. Because of all of this, Daryl growing up so close to me, my dream of playing in the NHL seemed so much more possible. If Daryl Sittler could do it, so could Brandt. <laughs> See, what I failed to recognize is that Daryl Sittler had a special gift on the ice. I did not. I was not any more likely to achieve what Daryl Sittler had done because we simply grew up in the same geographical location. It was frankly disrespectful to Daryl Sittler's hockey abilities to equate himself to me as a child. See, I was like the people in our story this morning, growing up in close proximity to this NHL legend and failing to give him the honor that he properly deserved for his abilities. I was facing this problem of proximity like the people were in Galilee. And I also think that this problem of proximity, unfortunately, is quite prevalent in our Christian culture as we now know it. So I have a little survey that I wish to conduct this morning, and I ask for your full participation in it. I want you to raise your hand with me if you grew up going to church as a kid. Look around this room. Like, I'm, I'm trying to find a hand that's not raised. I got to see a couple here. I think we can conclude that we have a culture that's accustomed to Jesus, that's grown up in close proximity to Jesus. First off, what a blessing it is to grow up in a culture such as this, to hear the gospel so freely and often. This is a good thing, a blessing from God. And at the same time, we need to recognize that when there's a blessing such as this, Satan is going to be working overtime to try to disrupt this gift that we have. 
how is Satan going to disrupt what we have? He's going to try to do what us to do to us what he did to the people of Galilee in this story. He wants to turn us into a people that allows Jesus to be in their presence and doesn't properly honor him as they should. He wants to trick us into thinking that we're Christians simply because we've grown up with Jesus. We know the stories. We go to church. We're able to play the part. And if we're honest with ourselves, Jesus is simply a stranger to us. Jesus isn't your savior because you grew up with him, because you've been in close proximity to him. He's only your savior if you've experienced him personally. You've realized that you need to be saved yourself by him, and you've made this confession with your very own tongue. And as a result, you must see your heart be changed to become a better reflection of the Son of God. This is a real faith in Jesus. Don't fall for the ploy that the people of Galilee did, thinking that they were alive because of their proximity to Jesus. It's lifeless and a deception from Satan. This problem of proximity transitions us into the second point and problem that I want to highlight in our passage this morning. False faith. Jesus addresses this problem as our story continues in verse 46 to 48. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son laid sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went in and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Okay, pause for a second. I forgot to warn everyone that I'm not the kind of preacher to put the verses up on the screen, so if you haven't already and you want to follow along, you're going to have to grab a pew Bible and do the work yourself. Anyways, as our story progresses, we have another character introduced into the story, a royal official. And so we now have Jesus, the people of Galilee, and this royal official all interacting simultaneously. When I first read this section of the passage this question popped into my mind. Why, Jesus? Why be so hard on this royal official that simply wanted to save his son who was on the point of death? But as I looked over the passage again, this question popped into my mind. Is Jesus speaking only to this royal official? Let's look specifically at the wording Jesus uses. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe it appears that Jesus' address isn't simply to this royal official. And the original text in Greek uses a plural form in the place that you people has used in our passage this morning. See, Jesus is addressing both this royal official and the people of Galilee simultaneously at the same time. He was calling out the sign-seeking that all these people were participating in. John reminds us of why these people had become sign-seekers. He's back in the place where he had turned water into wine, a miraculous sign done before some of these people's probably very eyes. And it seemed that the faith of this people hinged more on the miraculous signs of Jesus than the words that he spoke. And because it hinged on seeing physical signs, it really wasn't faith at all. Despite seeing these wonders, the people had yet to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah as their savior. Compare this to the Samaritans who we talked about last week. 
John 4, 39 to 41 says that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. What sign did the Samaritans have? No sign at all. And yet many of them came to believe in Jesus and in his words. That's a living faith. What the Galileans had was a dead and false faith. Now, while Jesus was calling out the people of Galilee, he was also at the same time speaking directly to this royal official that was standing before him. Clearly, this official had heard about all the miraculous things Jesus had done, and he had a quite a pressing matter on hand. His son was at the point of death. Without any other option, this man comes to Jesus, hoping that there's some way that Jesus can work a miracle for his son to restore him back to life. He'd come from his hometown of Capernaum. And now, Jesus needed to figure something out. Was this man like the rest of the people of Galilee, possessing a faith that required him to see a sign? Because this wasn't a problem that Jesus was unfamiliar with, people coming to him, demanding signs from him, and attesting their faith to him, strictly to these signs. John 2, 23 to 25 describes Jesus at the Passover where it says, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And so knowing what was in each person, Jesus was going to find out what was within the heart of this royal official. And so he's gonna start testing him Does he need to see these signs and wonders like the people of Galilee to believe? And through the test that he was going to put this man through, he was going to find out just how deeply this man trusted in his words. Because what he was going to put him through was going to require far more trust than any of the people of Galilee had ever displayed. Now as Jesus is probably formulating this plan that he's going to roll out, This man comes back and he seems basically unfazed by what Jesus said about talking about signs and wonders and not believing. Verse 49, he simply repeats his request to Jesus. Sir, come down before my child dies. It's clear that this man had come to Jesus with a mission on hand. He thought he was going to bring Jesus home physically with him to his son in order to bring him back to life. He thought he didn't have any other hope otherwise. Imagine the reaction of this man when he heard Jesus utter these words in verse 50. Go, your son will live. This was the ultimate test for this royal official because he had come down with hopes of bringing Jesus physically with him back to his son. And instead, Jesus was telling him to go alone. I imagine as he hears these words that two emotions welled up in the heart of this man. The first was likely joy and relief. Jesus says, my son's going to live? Jesus is going to heal him like the others? This is amazing. And as he's thinking these thoughts, hearing these words from Jesus, I assume that a second emotion starts to set in for him behind doubt. Wait, 
my son isn't here. How is Jesus going to heal him as he stays here? I was supposed to bring Jesus to my son in order for him to lay hands on him and heal him. Can he really heal my son in Capernaum? Here, we see the defining moment for this royal official in comparison to the people of Galilee. Did he need to see the sign before his eyes in order to believe in Jesus? Or would he be like the people of Samaria, taking Jesus at his word? Look at what this royal servant does in the second half of verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And by this action, this royal servant proves that he is not like the people of Galilee. He didn't have a false faith in Jesus. And he didn't need to see signs and wonders to believe in Jesus. He has the ability to take Jesus at his word. And he puts his trust in Jesus, which is our third point for this morning. Something about this man's interaction with Jesus convinced him that Jesus somehow was trustworthy, even with the life of his son. And so this man somehow calmly begins to make his walk back home to his son, firmly believing that Jesus indeed was going to do as he said. What a contrast this was to the people of Galilee. Now I want to focus on this man's walk back home because this walk shows just how deeply this man trusted in the words of Jesus. I've got a little map here, and as you can see, the city of Capernaum lies right there on the Sea of Galilee. And this man was here in Cana with Jesus. And the distance between these two cities was approximately 25 kilometers. Now, for anyone that knows me, I've done a fair share of backcountry camping and hiking over the past couple of years, and I've planned some very long trips and I've had to figure out how much ground I can cover in a day to ensure that I'm not pushing myself too far because I've definitely done that. Um, because of this, I've been able to develop a sense of what I think is a good pace for me to travel at when I'm carrying all my gear. And typically, I've developed this rule of thumb that if the trail's good and it's not too crazy, I can cover about four kilometers in an hour while walking with my gear on my back. Now, why bother mentioning this at all? I promise you I'm not trying to brag. Well, due to this information, the speed that I can travel and the distance that is from Cana to Capernaum, we can calculate how long it probably should have taken this man to get back home to his son in Capernaum. Doing some simple math, we figure out that this man could have arrived back home in six hours and 15 minutes. Now, I'll suppose that this man's like me and he needs to take the occasional break. So we'll tack on even another two hours of breaks for him along the road. So realistically, this man could have gotten back home in eight hours and 15 minutes. Now keep this in mind as we read this next part of the passage. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with news that the boy was living. When he acquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Now, I've made it apparent in how I've said it, but doesn't this word stick out yesterday? Now, we don't know the exact time it took for this man to travel back home to his family, but it's clear that this man was not in any rush, it seemed, to get home. 
he may have very well even slept as he was traveling back home to his family. Now, I've yet to become a father, but I have people that I love dearly in my life, like my wife, my direct family, all my in-laws, brothers and sisters-in-law. And I can assure you that if it was my loved one on the point of death, think I would be home as soon as I possibly could be. This wasn't the case for the royal servant. And remember, this was the same man panicked, rushing to Jesus, begging him to come at once down before his child would die. What had possessed this man to travel so calmly back home to Capernaum? What had changed in his heart? He had met Jesus. And he had heard, them, heard him utter these words, your son will live. And he trusted Jesus with every single ounce of his being. Something amazing had happened in the heart of this royal servant. He had let go of trying to control things on his own and turned that control back to Jesus. I trust Jesus. It's really easy to say and extremely hard to do because I have control issues. But I know that even as I try to control things, it's an exhausting task to do because there's so many things that lie out of my control. There's such a small amount of things that we hold in our hands. When we compare it to the massive amount of things that lie out of our hands, it's really like we have no control at all. We need to trust Jesus, the one who holds all things in his hands, has the ability to control all things, and has proven over and over and over that he is trustworthy. This royal official trusted Jesus. That's the only way he walked back home at the pace he did that day. He had wholeheartedly believed in every single word Jesus had said to him about his son living. And he completely surrendered all of the control over that situation back into the hands of Jesus. What a freeing act this must have been to let go, to surrender control into the hands of God. Just look at this once frantic royal official, now there calm as proof. All of his anxiety and panic exchanged for peace and security. Now I want to talk about this man's walk back home again. And I have a question for you to consider for yourself and your life this morning. What is your walking pace? Because we've seen in our story that there's two paces we can choose from. The first pace is rushed and frantic. This is the pace of someone that does not have peace and security in Jesus or has forgotten about the peace and security they have in Jesus. It's like this royal official before he had met Jesus. You think that things are in your control and so you rush through life straining onwards because you think that things are in your hands. And because of this, you can't handle when things don't go according to plan and in all of this, you find yourself ending up in despair. And when you step back and observe your life, you realize that you're absolutely exhausted because you've never stopped running. That's our first pace. And there's a second pace that we see in this story this morning. Steady and relaxed. The pace of someone who has experienced and believes in the peace and security found in Jesus. 
It's like the royal official after he met Jesus. You realize that things are out of your control, and that is all right. You know that you trust in Jesus, who holds everything in his control. You know that he indeed is trustworthy. And you know that whatever comes your way along that road that you're walking on, Jesus has already foreseen. And so while the road may become rough and hard to travel, you carry on, knowing that Jesus is walking right alongside you. And as you go through life, you find yourself energized because you've let go of trying to hold on to things that aren't supposed to be within your hands. There's only one pace that Jesus wants us to have. It's the pace that royal servant had as he walked back home that day to his family. Now you may be in a season of life this morning feeling rushed and frantic. I've been there too. Doesn't mean that we're not Christian. But Jesus is inviting you to change your pace today. He's inviting you to experience the peace and security that's found in his name. Psalm 23 puts it as such, and I love this piece of scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a gift it is from Jesus to be able to trust in him like this royal servant did, like we all have the opportunity to do this morning. Now, as we continue in our passage, we come to the final couple verses of John 4. We see that this royal servant had witnessed his son being restored in health and raised back to life. As verse 50, and then, but there was more to come. And this man realized something else. In verse 53, it says, the father then realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. See, he's realizing that when Jesus uttered those words to him, your son will live, he was simultaneously healing his son, laying 25 kilometers away in Capernaum. And through this, we see the power of Jesus magnified to a whole new level within the book of John. Not only is he able to work miracles in his physical presence, but he's able to work miracles by the mere uttering of words. And through his words, he had restored this boy back to life. But what if I told you that Jesus brought more than one person back to life in this story? Because this royal servant was going to witness himself and his entire household raised back to life. They were going to be eternally healed. Our final point this morning. The last part of verse 53 makes this clear. So he and his whole household believed. They believed. They honored Jesus in a way none of the people of Galilee had and they themselves became followers of Jesus. 
In this moment, this entire household who had witnessed their child raised back to life watched as all their lives were raised back to life because they were spiritually dead. That's our baseline condition as humans, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. This whole household, once dead, was made alive in Christ, as Ephesians says. This is the eternal healing that is found in Jesus. It lasts forever. Nothing can hinder it or make it any less significant. No power can get in the way of it once this healing starts in our hearts. And once we come alive in Christ, never ever will we be spiritually dead again. This royal servant got to experience both his son physically raised to life and himself and his entire household spiritually raised to life by the power of Jesus. But I know, and we've heard, that there are people here this morning who are currently experiencing the loss of someone close to them this morning, both expectedly and unexpectedly. And these losses are painful. You may have been like this royal servant running to Jesus in your prayers, unrelenting, begging him to come and heal. And you may have seen those prayers go seemingly unanswered. Where were you, God? may have been a question that's run through your mind this past week, month, year. Why couldn't you heal my loved one? And I'm not able to offer any good insight as to why particular prayers are answered and others are not. But this story shows that Jesus feels such deep compassion for us humans that he went to the point of becoming a human just like us. And in becoming human, he experiences things like we do. The Bible documents Jesus himself crying, weeping for his friend Lazarus when he receives the knowledge that he is dead. He's weeping even though he surely knew that he was going to bring Lazarus Lazarus back to life. And out of Jesus' compassion for us humans, he can do two things for us. The first thing is that Jesus can heal us miraculously in a physical sense. He did it for this royal servant's son, and he did it for many other people documented throughout the Gospels. However, these healings, in a physical sense, are temporary. A physical death was still inevitable for this royal servant's son. One day again, he would truly die. And so while physical healings like this are amazing to witness, they cannot be the object of our faith in God. This leads us to the second thing that Jesus can do. Because of Jesus' compassion for us, 
He will heal us spiritually. If we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, he will undoubtedly heal us. And this healing is everlasting. It goes beyond life here on earth as we know it. Physical death simply becomes a transition from this life into the next one. And it's one that's far more amazing than anything we could ever imagine. Death here on earth is not the end of the story. It simply becomes the beginning of an eternity. And so you may be here this morning remembering that loved one you lost. They may not have been healed physically in the sense you had prayed so desperately for them to be. But there is hope that if they were a follower of Jesus, they've been healed in a way we can't even begin to fathom here this morning. I cannot imagine the scene it will be to arrive in heaven, to see my Savior face to face and to feel his physical embrace for the first time. This is the eternal healing that I have in Jesus. And then, at the same time, to see those that I've lost and will lose here on earth, my friends, my family members, patients that I've cared for in the hospital, all together, worshiping Jesus for the work that he did to heal us for an eternity in him by his death on that cross. It's going to be simply amazing. This is the promise we have in Jesus. Eternal life with him. Eternally healed in him. It's the promise that this royal servant and his family received that day in this story. What a wonderful promise this is. A promise that we gather together Sunday after Sunday to celebrate. We gather to remember the price that was paid to purchase this eternal healing by participating in things such as communion. And in all of this, Jesus has proven that he deserves to be honored, worshipped, and praised from the bottom of our hearts for all that he accomplished on that cross for our sake. And as we get ready to close out our time together this morning, I hope your hearts have been stirred as mine has been to sing our praises to God, to lift him up for the work that he has done to eternally heal us. I think we can confidently say that all the power and glory lies in the hands of our God. And so as the worship team comes back up, my hope and prayer is that you can join me in singing proudly to our God for the work he did to heal us forever. Before we leave, I just want to say this. What is your pace? Where are you trying to control things in your life? I'm speaking to myself. And isn't it great to know that, as we often think temporally, it's just temporary things we often make big in our lives? What about the eternal things? So this morning, I just want to, whether you are a follower of Jesus, maybe in proximity, you have been here for many years, but have never experienced a personal transformation in your life. Today is the day. Think about that. And uh, for the rest of us, help, may we be helped to really give it all over to him. 
really give it over to him? Uh, what shalom can we experience when we really give it all over to him? There's so many difficulties, so many challenges, so many problems that we can't solve. But we know one who's greater. So let's give it over to him and let's be people of peace as we serve our God and as we live in our community. May we bring that quiet hope to people that are desperate. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are so gra grateful for the fact that Jesus offered up through the eternal spirit his life and shed his blood on the cross so that we can have forgiveness but more so that we can someday come into your very presence as your family. It's so incredible that you love the world so much that you gave your only son that we can believe, just like this uh, official, this royal official, he, he believed the words of Jesus and moved on it. So Father, help us today, no matter where we're at, to move at your words of truth. We thank you that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we come to you, each one of us, Father, help us to pause and to really reflect where we're at. And may we give it all to you. May we be all for Christ. So we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.